Um, but why don't you have a seat? And if you've looked at your notes, you know that we got a lot of work to do. Um, so why don't you pull those out? And I'm just going to pray for us again um, before we dive into things. Why don't you pray with me? Jesus, um, I thank you that you are here with us. And as we talk about others, help us to not make the mistake of, of not looking at ourselves. God, I pray that um, we would be soft-hearted to the things that you want to reveal about our lives because you love us and because you want all of our hearts. And so, God, um, as we look into your word, be our teacher. As we think about our students, the young people in our lives, we love them. And in our love for them, we want to be better with them. And so guide us today in, in Jesus' name. Amen. So I wanted to start off this morning uh, telling you about one of my not-so-bright moments in life. I've had many of them, but this one was in, in elementary school. And in elementary school, I had a goldfish. That is right. I had a goldfish as a pet. And it wasn't kept in uh, one of those nice aquariums that, uh, you know, kind of clean themselves, take care of themselves. It was in a fishbowl. Uh, which meant uh, very often I had to clean out the fish bowl. How's it, how it went is I would, I, I would take the bowl, I would go to the kitchen, I would, I would catch my fish and, and, and put it in a bowl, dump all the water out, clean all the rocks and everything, put it back together, put some clean water in there, put my fish in there, and carry it back to my room. That was kind of the deal. If I was going to get a goldfish, I was going to have to clean the fish bowl. And honestly, I was, I was pretty good at it. I was... I was proud that I could do this as an elementary student. Well, there was, um, there was one day where I went into my room and I, I saw the fishbowl and I saw that the water was cloudy and I thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to clean this without my mom even asking me to do it. And so I, I, I grabbed the fishbowl and I start walking to the, the kitchen. And you know in traumatic experiences in life how life tends to slow down? you ever notice that? Like, you know what's going to happen and, and, and you know it's going to be bad, but you can't really do anything about it. Um, this wasn't like that at all. Um, this was the exact opposite. I, I walked in there and I hit the kitchen floor and it was so fast. I was on my back. Um, there was glass. There was water. There was everything all, all around me. I mean, it was kind of like a mini disaster uh, because I knew I needed to uh, clean my fishbowl. What I didn't know is that my mom had just mopped the floor. And I, I learned that a freshly mopped floor is, is very slick. And so I hit it and I was down so fast, um, everything shattered. And, and so I did what, what any real hero would do uh, in that moment is, first of all, I saved my fish. Yes, my fish survived this whole incident. I, I, I saved my fish, and then I kind of, you know, checked myself out. Everything seemed fine. I was soaking wet, but I, I felt like everything was okay until my mom and my sister came running in the kitchen. I could just tell by the look on their faces that something wasn't right. And, and I learned something that when you get a deep cut, uh, sometimes you don't feel it. Um, because I looked down at my leg, and as I looked down at my right leg, I could see that there was this just kind of nicely cut hunk of flesh um, kind of flapped over, and um, blood starting to ooze out of it. I know that's a little uh, gross, but Band-Aids are great, right? We all agree, Band-Aids are really helpful. When you get a scrape, um, when you get a cut, something like that, the Spider-Man Band-Aid really, really helps. Um, is there any time that a Band-Aid is ridiculous? Think about that for a moment. Is there any time where it's just silly to try to put a Band-Aid on something? Um, 
I learned it, it's silly when you, you have a huge hunk of flesh. Um, a big wound. In, in that case, you, you don't need a band-aid. That would be stupid. What you need is stitches. You need something that will actually fix the wound. And I know that's kind of a gross place to start, but I, but I just want to say up front that that picture is a lot like what it is for you and I and students when we take the insecurity in our lives and we try to fix it with an idol. When we try to, to fix what is broken in our lives and put a band-aid on it on our own without finding our complete security that only comes from Jesus Christ. In that case, we need something that will really fix it. See, this is Youth Weekend, and what we want to do this weekend is I'm going to do something that I've never done before. Uh, usually we spend all of our time talking about students, but what I want to do is I want to give you a message that I gave to students a couple months ago in our youth group. And I, and I want to do it for a few reasons. If, if I just thought back over the last 12 months and all the things that we talked about with students, all the things that we walked through, if I just picked one message that I would say resonated above all else, Um, One of them that when we presented it, it just really struck a chord with where our students and where our youth staff was. It would be this message right here. And so I've been thinking this summer and praying and asking God, God, what do you want to say to us about the students in our lives and in our church? I I keep coming back to this. I, I just want you to know that this stuff that we talk about is big for young people. Now, now we know this, or, or I'm assuming that we know um, that to be human um, is to face insecurity, isn't it? I, I mean, to, to be a human, to be a, a middle school student, high school student, adult, whatever, we have to face insecurity from the, the moment sin entered the world, Right? Uh, if you go back to Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, you, you find out that in the beginning that God created all of us um, for a secure relationship with him and, and with one another. And we see that right off the bat in scripture that, that Adam and Eve are walking with God securely and with one another. But then when you see as, as sin entered in the world, as Adam and Eve decided to do their own thing, um, one of the, the things that happened, one of the results of all that was fractured at that time is you and I have something that we feel often. It's called insecurity. And, and when you're a student... Um, that insecurity is just amplified. It's just kind of brought out in front of your life all the time. You remember what that's like to be in middle school and high school? Uh, you're always wondering, you know, do I fit in? Will people like me? Um, am I going to make it through this tough situation? Um, what is my future really going to hold? I mean, all of those things are daily in front of students. They face insecurity all the time. But the other thing you need to know about students is they, they don't like that. Um, they, they don't want to be insecure people. In fact, they want to be able to walk through life at, at home and at school and, and the different things that they do, and they want to be 100% secure. That was the context of this message as we presented it to students. It was at winter camp this last January, and our, our theme for winter camp was imagine, that, that we just wanted to imagine what our lives would be like uh, if we were 100% secure. 
as people. I mean, can you, can you just imagine that for a moment? We just, we just challenge students to think about how would you relate to people? How would you relate to God? How would, how, what kind of pressures would be released? What would your life be like if you were 100% secure? And what I heard from students at camp is that, that most of them said, I don't know if I can imagine my life like that, but if it's possible, I would love that. I would love to live that kind of life. Now, a lot of us, when we hear students say that, um, uh, we want to quickly tell them about Jesus. And that's the right thing to do because we know that that Jesus, through what he has done on the cross, um, that he can provide complete security in every part of our lives. I mean, that is the good news that we believe about Jesus is that Jesus can make us fully secure. But in in wanting to explain that to students, what I find is you also have to spend some time, maybe before you talk about Jesus, talking about their lives right now. And things like insecurity and and maybe the silly and the, the ridiculous things that we do to try to fix the insecurity in our life. See, students, they're they're just like us in this. A lot of us, as insecurity creeps up in our lives, uh, what we try to do is is put a Band-Aid on it. We try to fix it ourselves with something that we call an idol rather than looking to Jesus Christ. We do, I think, what the people in Exodus chapter 32 we're doing. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to, to Exodus 32. We're going to read a, sh- a short part of a story this morning. And the story actually happens way before Exodus. It happens with a guy named Abraham. Maybe, maybe you've heard about this guy, Abraham. You know that, that at the beginning, um, God called Abraham and Abraham responded to God's call. And as Abraham responded to God's call in faith, God made an amazing commitment to Abraham. You remember what that is? Um, God's commitment to Abraham was that that he was um, going to be made into a great nation, that his sons and grandkids and and all of them, that they were going to be a great nation for God, that they were going to be his people and that he was going to be their God and he was going to bless them and bless the whole world through this group of people. I mean, what, a, what an amazing commitment for God to make um, to a person. Now, if you fast forward a, a couple hundred years, probably 600 years or so, um, God had made them into a great nation of people. There were a lot of them, but at the same time, uh, they were very confused about their life. Um, Because here they are with this promise that God was going to bless them and bless the world through them. um, But instead they're living in Egypt in slavery and in horrible conditions. I mean it was so bad that the Egyptians were, were killing their infant sons just to control the population. This was the life uh, that they lived in. And so they looked at this promise that God had made to them and they said, God, God, what's broken here? What's wrong? Have you forgotten us? Get us out of this slavery. And if you remember how the story goes, God actually, he hears their prayers and he does something about it. Remember that? Um, He raises up a guy named Moses and uh, uh, Moses goes to Pharaoh, the leader in Egypt, and he says, let God's people go. And and Pharaoh says, no, right? 
You remember how this goes. God, God typically does things in amazing fashions. And so um, God starts to send these plagues. There's, you know, the, the, the Nile River turns to blood. And, um, you know, there's flies and frogs and all these different plagues. And finally, Pharaoh says, I have enough. I, I've had enough of this. You can leave. And so God's people, they, they take off and they start making their way out of Egypt. And then, of course, Pharaoh changes his mind and his whole army goes after them. And then there's this... This great scene where, where Israel is right up against the Red Sea. And, and Pharaoh and his, his, his army is coming out against them. And, and they pray again to God and, and, and God delivers them, right? He parts the Red Sea and they, they walk across on dry land. And they, and they walk across into this great place of freedom in their life where, where God in the middle of the wilderness is feeding them and giving them water and demonstrating day after day that God loves them and is committed to them. And that's where we pick up the story in Exodus 32. Because at this time, God calls Moses, their leader, up onto a mountain. And and, and Moses is there for 40 days. And and after a while, these people who have been cared for by God and delivered by God are starting to get nervous. This is what it says about them in in Exodus 32, verse 1. It says, when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain... They gathered around Aaron and said, come make us a God who will be before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. And on, their note, on your notes, I, I just want you to really big write the word insecurity. Because what we see from these people as Moses is gone and they don't know when he's coming back, all of a sudden they're in a place of great insecurity. And they're doing what a lot of us do when we start to feel that way. They're looking for something to fix it. We need something to hang on to. As for Moses, we don't know if this guy's ever coming back. So you read on what they do in in verse 2. It says, Aaron answered them, Take off your gold earrings that your wives and your sons and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. And he took what they had handed him and he made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. So what do these people do when they're feeling insecure? What they do is they create for themselves an idol. This one, it's made to look like a golden cow, But really an idol is just anything that we set up in the place of God. Anything that we take and we, and we try to ask it to serve the function that God is to serve in our life. And so these people, they you know, take all their gold and they, they melt it down and they, they make this golden calf. Now, I was thinking what it would be like for us if maybe one of us was somehow transported back to this time and we could sit on the hill and, and watch all of these people make this idol. And, and, and I was thinking about how ridiculous that would seem for us that, that these people would make this golden image and say that it is the God that delivered them from Israel. I mean, it seems silly to us 
But I wonder if for their culture, it wasn't that far off for them. See, they had come out of a culture in Egypt that was full of idolatry. I mean, that was what Egyptians did when they, they needed something to go right for them. They needed, you know, rain for their crops or they needed this thing or that thing. What they would do is they would create some kind of God, build a temple, put some gold stuff in it and say, this is the thing that we need to appease. And if it's happy, it'll help us out. And so I wonder if in their insecurity, wondering about if Moses is ever coming back, these people just think about, well, what was it like in Egypt? Well, that's what they did. We need to make some kind of God, something that we can see and hold on to. And I wonder if we still do the same. I mean, we don't take a a golden image and set it up in our house and pray to it and say, you know, save me, you are my God. We don't do that, but we do have a tendency to take things in our lives and to elevate them in the position of God and to ask them to serve the function as God in our lives. I mean, if you really think about that, if that is what an idol is, if you look around, then, then we have a lot of different idols in our culture. I mean, I just started making a list of the things that I see in my life for in others. I mean, relationships can then be an idol. You can put a, a boyfriend or girlfriend or a husband or a wife or, or food or, or porn or money or, or grades or hobbies or, or all these things. We can elevate them and ask them to do things in our lives that only God is meant to do. It's the same exact thing. It's idolatry. And I want to ask us, why do we do that? I mean, I was thinking about this, and I don't, I don't know all the different reasons, but I could come up with two reasons. I think one of the reasons why we start to involve ourselves and give ourselves to idols is that, that idols do help us forget for a while. I mean, when we are dealing with worry and, and fear and and insecurity and depression in our lives. Uh, Many of these things that we elevate as idols, we elevate them because they help us forget about that for a while and kind of shove it aside. And so I can have um, just a really hard situation in my life, but I eat a lot of food and, and I kind of forget about it for a while. Or I go on a really good run or I I look at porn and I kind of escape reality for a while. I, I think this is, the, this is the heart behind the party scene with students. Um, I don't believe anybody that says that students party and drink alcohol, alcohol in excess um, because of peer pressure and they want to fit in. If you talk to students who do that, most of them will say, this is the one time in my week that I can just forget my problems and have fun for a little while. You see what they're doing? It's helping them forget for a while. And they do that really well. I mean, a lot of things in our lives do set things aside for a moment. They help us forget or, or maybe even more dangerous. We give ourselves to idols because we actually believe this is the thing that we need to fix our life. So you get a high school girl who who meets a boy and is convinced, convinced that if that guy is with her, everything will be good for the rest of her life. And we'll write songs about relationships that say, you know, no matter what's going on in my life, as long as you're with me, I'm happy. 
You see what we're doing? We genuinely believe that this, this thing is what will fix our life. And I think that's what was going on here in Exodus. I, I think these people genuinely believe that this is what they need. Let's read on and see what happens. In verse 5 it says, When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of this calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. And so the next day the people rose early and they sacrificed burnt offerings and they presented fellowship offerings. And afterwards they sat down to eat and drink and they got up to indulge in revelry. In other words, this did help them, didn't it? I mean, a moment ago they were worried, is Moses ever coming back? What is going to happen to us? They build this image and all of a sudden they're celebrating. They're, they're having a party. Everything is better now, right? And it's silly, isn't it? I mean, for you and I, it's ridiculous. Nothing has changed. That, that golden calf didn't part the Red Sea and didn't feed them in the desert. Nothing has changed other than they got rid of a lot of their gold. But somehow they feel like it's better. This is actually what we needed. And we can celebrate. We can move on in our life. And it's ridiculous. It's like putting a band-aid over a big gaping wound. And yet that's the challenge with idolatry, isn't it? That there's a lot of things that are so deep entrenched in us that we cannot see that maybe it's a lie. That maybe it can't deliver what we're expecting it to deliver in our life. I want you to turn to Isaiah 44 because God, God just gives us a really clear picture of this. It, it, it's a great story. What God has to say um, through the prophet Isaiah, it gives us some great insight to idolatry. This is what he says in, in verse 6 of Isaiah 44. He says, I am the first and the last and apart from me there is no God. That is just God laying it out for us. I have always been around. I'll always be around. And there is nothing else in this world that can function as God in your life. I am it, one God. And then he goes on and he says this. He says, all who make idols are nothing. And the things that they treasure are worthless. Those who speak up for them are blind. They're ignorant to their own shame. I mean, I read that and, and I kind of take a step back and I think to myself, wow, these are, these are kind of harsh, direct words that, that God speaks this way about this issue in his people. And then God goes on to tell a story about a man. About a guy who uses the mind that God gave him and the energy that God supplies him and the tools that God helped him make and and, and the tree that God helped grow. And, and this is what he does with it in verse 14. It says, he cut down cedars, or perhaps he took a cypress or an oak. And he let it grow among the trees of the forest, and he planted a pine, and the rain made it grow. It is man's fuel for burning. Some of it he takes and he warms himself. He kindles a fire and he bakes bread. But he also fashions a god and he worships it. He makes an idol and he bows down to it. It says, half of the wood he burns in the fire. Over it he prepares his meat. He roasts his meat and eats his fill. And he also warms himself and he says, ah, I am warm. I see the fire. 
But from the rest of it, he makes a god, his idol, and he bows down to it, and he worships it, and he prays to it, and he says, save me, you are my god. Do you see what he's doing here? Do you see what he's saying? That somebody could take something and look to it to function as God in their life. See, as I read this passage, it it gives me great insight about idols. One of the things that it says right off the bat about idols is that idols typically start out as good, useful things. That's a really challenging part of idols. I mean, most of the idols that we have in our culture, they don't appear with like a a tattooed face of Satan on them that says, you know, I'm going to take you away from Jesus. They don't appear like that at all. I mean, for, for this guy, it's a, it's a block of wood, and it's, a, it's something that he uses to cook his dinner and, and warm himself. It's a good, useful thing. For these Israelites, it's gold that, that honestly they had plundered from Egypt. It was a gift that God had given them um, as they went out of Egypt. It was good. It was useful. If you think about the things in our lives, a lot of those things like sports and hobbies and, and relationships... I mean, those are, those are good, useful things that God has, has put in our lives for a purpose and, and, and blesses our lives with them. The, the problem that we do is we take those things and then we start to elevate them. And we start to ask them to do things that they were never intended to be able to do in our life. I want you to write that down, that a good thing becomes an idol when we ask it to serve a purpose in which it was never intended. You get that? So you get a guy who has a block of wood, and he's asking it to save him, to to protect his life. Or you get a student who gets involved in theater, Instead of using that thing maybe to project some of their skills and serve others um, by that or to be in community and serve one another, that we use that thing for our identity. That I feel better about my life and secure if I get this part. Or we enter into a relationship with somebody dating or even marriage and we start to to look at that person and we start to ask them to be everything we need for us it's something they can't do it's something it's a purpose that they were never intended to fulfill you see there's a lot of great things in our life and we have to remember that that those things aren't 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 necessarily bad in themselves like food and alcohol and things like that they're they're not bad in the right context but they just can't fix your problems. They can't fix what is broken deep inside you that that makes you feel insecure. It's just an idol. It's just a thing. And that's the really tricky part of it. And so what God is trying to say to us here in Isaiah is God's trying to remind us that idols, since they are not God, cannot serve that purpose. They cannot save us and complete us at all times in our lives. In fact, this is what God goes on to say about this man who is, who is taking this block of wood and, and trying to worship it. In verse 18, he says, They know nothing, they understand nothing, their eyes are plastered over so they cannot see. 
And their minds are closed, so they cannot understand. No one stops to think. No one has the knowledge or understanding to say, half of it I used for fuel. And I even baked bread over its coals, and I, I roasted meat, and I ate. Shall I make a detestable thing from what is left? And shall I bow down to a block of wood? God says, you're feeding on ashes. A deluded heart misleads him. He cannot save himself or say, is not this thing in my right hand a lie? That's just God's way of saying, you have to see this for what it is. It's just a block of wood. It's just a relationship. It's just a sport. It's just some money. It's just a job. It can't do all those things that you're asking it to do. It's almost ridiculous. See, here's the thing. I think a lot of us, if we really sat down and had a conversation about this and, and we're starting to be really transparent about these things in our lives, I think a lot of us, what we would say is, we'd say, Matthias, I, I know that. I know that it's just a sport that my kid plays. I, I know that it's not everything. But then as we watch ourselves, as we watch how we spend our maybe time and money and how we react and what we get angry about, We say that, but aren't we still asking that thing to function in that same way? Aren't we still asking that thing to give us identity and purpose and value anyways? See, that's what I do when I I read this. I mean, first of all, I... I have a tendency to think about students and say, oh yeah, students do this all the time. Look at all the silly things that they give themselves to. But you know what I need to do is I need to look at myself first and say, wait, am I blinded to anything? Is there anything in my life that I hold on to so strongly and God would say, Matthias, it's just a block of wood. It's just your yard. It's just that you direct a camp. She's your wife. She's a a gift. But she can't do all of that for you. Good grief. Think about what you're doing here. I mean, what are the idols in your life? Now, here's the thing. When you you start to see them, and I know it's hard. I I think that's what Isaiah is saying, is, is that it's hard for us to see this sometimes. But, but when you start to see those things in your life, what do you do? I mean, how do you take those things and remove the place that they hold in your life? And how do you replace that with the security that God is talking about? Um, the security that Jesus Christ is offering. How do, you, how do you make that transition with something that maybe has, has been entrenched in your life for years? Well, in Exodus... It's a fascinating thing what happens. See, as as God and Moses are up on this mountain and having a conversation and as they see what is going on with Israel, um, God sends Moses down to that situation. And at first, Moses honestly is angry. So angry that he takes, remember that scene, the Ten Commandments, and he throws them down and he breaks them. 
And then Moses, it's so chaotic. There's so much false celebration that he can't even get control of these people. And so he gathers a few faithful people around him and he gives them swords and he tells them to go throughout the entire camp to gain some control. And on that day, 3,000 people die by their own countrymen. I mean, it's an ugly, ugly scene. And then Moses does something that's re- kind of weird for us is he, he takes this idol and he melts it down and he grinds it up and he puts it in the water and he, he makes people drink that water. And a lot of people read that and they would say, well, well why does Moses do that? Why does, why does God want him to do that? And I don't know for sure, but I, I think a big part of it is, is, is God wanted them in love to see that this was just some metal. It couldn't even save itself. And he wanted them to remember he's the one who saved them. He hasn't left them. Remember all these things that I've done? God in his love sometimes deals with us in this way because we're blind and we need to see and we need to see God. And I, I think it's really critical for us in the same way that, that we need to have these times of clarity. That, that maybe we need to spend a week really thinking through, um, God, are there any idols in my life? God, is there anything that I've elevated too big? That, that we need to see some of those things for, for what they are, but also in those moments of clarity, we, we need to see Jesus, that Jesus is actually the thing that saves us, not to just check off a box on a bubble sheet with the right answer. We need to see that again. Jesus is the one who saves us. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Romans chapter 5. I'm just going to leave us this morning with a picture again of who Jesus is and what, what Jesus does in our lives. This is something that if you're a part of a grow group or if you have friends or, or if you want to spend some time studying and, and, and walking through something in Scripture this week, this would be the thing to talk about. To just read Romans 5 and see what Paul is, is painting for us. See the picture that he is giving us about Jesus again. This is what he starts off and says in, in Romans 5 verse 1. He says, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Isn't that an amazing thing? I mean, Paul is, is writing to people who have received Jesus into their life. And in receiving Jesus, Paul says that they are, they are in this place of grace. They have gained access um, to the grace of God, God's unconditional love for his people. And then Paul begins to unpack for us um, what are the characteristics of this? What are the good things that go along with being in God's grace? Here's what he says. He re- We rejoice now in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice, check this out, in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. And and perseverance, character, and, and character, hope. On your notes, really big, next to this section, I want you to write the word security. Because when I think about being in the grace of God, the picture that Paul is painting for me is a great place of security. 
A place that even when we're suffering, even when things aren't going well, uh, that we could have hope. That, that it could actually be okay. That, that even if Moses is gone for 40 days, um, we're still taken care of. Or even if I don't get that play part in school or, or make that team or, or if my parents split up or if something else doesn't go right in my life, Paul is saying through Jesus in that place, there's hope. There's security. It's coming from him. And a lot of us, uh, we read that and, and, and we ask ourselves, is that really true? I mean, how do we know that we can really trust this? How do we know that Jesus isn't just another one of those lies out there that are saying they promise something when they really can't deliver? I mean, I can't hold on to, I can't, I can't grab hold of Jesus. How do I know that I can trust him like this? Well, Paul answers that for us as we read on. Verse 5, he says, and this hope does not disappoint us. See what he's saying there? This is a sure thing because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. He says, you see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And he goes on to say, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, then how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life? I know this is wordy. I know this is a lot of like theological words, but I hope you get the gist of what he's saying. See, if you're wondering if God really gives us security through Jesus, Paul is saying, well, you just have to look at how Jesus has loved you. That's what he's saying. You just have to remember who Jesus is and what he has actually done. See, when we look at Jesus, what we see is God giving up his rights for us, right? God be becomes a man and he comes to earth, and he dies on a cross. And you might ask, well, why did he die on a cross? Did he, did he deserve that? Had he had committed any crime? I mean, all that Jesus does when he comes to the earth is he lives perfectly. He speaks the truth to people, and he serves them. That's it. And because he speaks the truth to people, there's some people that cannot buy that he really is in fact God. And so they, they work it out so that he is nailed to a cross and dies. And of course we know that he doesn't stay dead, that he rises again. But, but in that act of dying on the cross, we, we know from scripture that Jesus is taking all of our sin on himself. All the times that, that you gave yourself to an idol... All the times that you, you looked at God and you looked at something else and you said, I'm going to hold on to this instead. And maybe how rude that is, how, 
how arrogant that is for us. All the times that you've done that, Jesus goes to the cross taking those things on himself and he dies for them. He actually does something about our sin. That's why Jesus isn't an idol. Because idols, they can't really do anything for us. They're just a block of wood. They're just this this thing. But Jesus actually does something about our greatest need in life. He deals with our sin. Paul uses the word reconciled. He brings us from distant to God to close to him. And when does God do this? See, this is the key. If we're struggling with trusted God, when does Jesus do this? Paul says he does it while you're still sinful. He does it before you ever cared about him. He does it before you ever made a move yourself to clean up anything in your life yourself. And Paul is saying if Jesus loves us like that, when we haven't even done anything for him, how much more than while we're in a right standing with God, when we're doing the best we can to honor him and live for him, how much more than is is he going to take care of us? How much more than is he going to be everything we need to walk into school, to walk with our friends, to be able to look at our husband and wife and say, I know you're not perfect and that's okay. I'm just going to love you. I don't need you to be an idol in my life. See, we have to see who Jesus is. We have to see that anything else is ridiculous. Or you can maybe write this down on your notes. We have to see that Jesus and only him is able to save when everything else cannot. See, I just want to finish up this morning just kind of leaving us there and asking you maybe to think about a couple questions this week. Questions that that maybe will take a lot of work to answer, that maybe sitting here um, in church with me talking forever isn't going to do it all. Maybe you need to take some time. The first question is this. What are the idols in your life? And I would encourage you to look at yourself first. Because here's the thing, we can see them in students, and students, as we talk about this thing, overwhelmingly, for months after this message, we're saying, that's me, that's what I'm dealing with. And my guess is, is that adults, we're we're not that much further away from them. So so what is it for you? And you got to look at yourself first, if you're going to help a student. Because you got to be an example. You maybe don't have it all figured out, but, but maybe to have some transparency as you talk to the young person in your life about their idols, to be able to admit what you wrestle with first. And if you don't, if you haven't thought about yourself and you start talking to a student about this, they'll point them out for you anyways. So do the hard work yourself first. What is it for you? And then, what is it for the students in your life? What is it for the people you care about? Because they're saying this is a big, big deal. And it doesn't matter their background. 
Kids that have never been in church before, they're saying, yeah, I do this. I want to be free from this. And church kids too. In fact, me being a church kid, I know that it's even sometimes, I think, tougher. Because here's the hard part. For church kids, one of their idols often is that they're a church kid. And they find all their identity in having the right answers, not in what Jesus has done on the cross. So what are the idols in the lives of young people around you? And when you see those things, I would ask you to commit yourself to helping them be free. To helping them step away from idols and learn to depend on Christ alone. And this is the thing as a youth pastor that I am overwhelmed about. That there are so many students who are saying, I want to be secure. And I'm getting that it's not in this thing, it's in Christ. I I just need some help. And so I would ask all of you, with the young people that God has put around you, would you think about this? How can you help them depend on Christ? I mean, maybe it's just starting to point some of these things out to them. Maybe one of the things you could do as a family this week is to sit down and and have a conversation about this. Maybe as a parent, you actually have to make some hard decisions that your kids won't agree with. But you need to do that maybe to protect them from something that they're not seeing. Or maybe we just need to pray too. That maybe the thing that you can do as you adopt a student this year is just to pray about this, that that in everything that they would look to Christ, um, not something lesser. That we can maybe as a church send a great message to the young people, the message that, that John sends in 1 John where he says, Dear children, keep yourself from idols. So what can you do? What would you commit yourself to doing? this school year. Let's pray. God, um, I just want to start off again admitting that much of my life I've looked to idols. God, I did it as a church kid. I've, I've done it with relationships. I've even done it with ministry and God, I want to say again that I'm sorry for that. God, would you always expose things in me? I don't want to be blinded. I don't want to go through life holding on to something that you just look at and you see it for what it really is. So God, show me things. Even this week, even after teaching this message. And Lord, I pray for everybody in this room that you would do that same thing, that you would reveal those things in us. And and God, I thank you that you are a good God. And in being a good God, you don't just leave us with idols, but you actually help us. God, for anybody in this room who has never experienced security from you, have never been forgiven, Lord, I just pray um, that today even, before they go to bed, that this would be a day that they would receive that from you and be free of things that they hold on to. And God, for the students that you've brought into this church, we love them, we thank you for them. Um, We're so glad that they're in our lives. I'm so glad that I get to be their pastor. 
God, would you keep them from idols? God, would you deal with them in the same direct, loving way that we see you deal with your people in Scripture? God, and lead them towards you. And God, in that, would Camus and Washougal really recognize that you are real, that you are good, and that you are the only God. That they would recognize that through our students and the way that they love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Give us clean hands, give us pure hearts.